Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Thursday, December 12th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins, with a summary of election news. Today, the DNC announces the next four debates, the polling deadline closes tonight for next week's debate, and why it was so hard to qualify this time, who has and has not qualified for that debate, Hawaii cancels its Republican primary, a judge dismisses that lawsuit about the South Carolina Republican primary, the impeachment update, and a comparison of TV spending by the Democratic candidates. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, the DNC has announced the basic info on the four debates that come in the first two months of 2020. As a reminder, the DNC has said it will hold 12 primary debates in all, half of which are in 2019 and the other half in 2020. Now, they could certainly add to that list, but that's the current plan. Next week's debate is the sixth one so far. The list they released today brings us to 10, so that means after all of these, there are still at least two more debates in the primary season alone. Okay, so here is the list of dates, broadcasters, and locations for the first four debates in 2020. Debate number 7, January 14th. It'll air on CNN and take place at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. Debate number 8, February 7th. It'll air on ABC and take place at St. Anselm College in Manchester, New Hampshire. Debate number 9, February 19th. It'll air on NBC and take place somewhere in Las Vegas, Nevada. And debate number 10, February 25th. It'll air on CBS and take place at the Gilliard Center in Charleston, South Carolina. So with three debates in February, um, we're going to be busy. Also, you can imagine that the qualification rules for those February debates could be weirdly complicated, given how close they are to one another on the calendar. It might make sense for the DNC to simplify the polling rules, given that those last two debates are only six days apart. We don't have any official word on what those qualifying rules are yet, but I'm watching for that one and we may get some more info as soon as tomorrow. One other note, the DNC acknowledged the possibility of an impeachment trial and the fact that there are multiple senators likely to appear on the debate stage while also having to attend that trial late into the evening. They said they would try to figure out how to make that work if it happens. While we're on the topic of debates, we have a very likely final list of candidates for the stage next week. While it is technically possible that Representative Tulsi Gabbard could get a qualifying poll late today, it seems unlikely. And she's already pledged not to appear anyway, so we might as well assume that this is the list of candidates who will appear one week from today. Biden, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Sanders, Steyer, Warren, and Yang. That's 7, down from 10 in November, and that's actually the first substantial reduction we've seen in months. While we're talking about qualifying polls, former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg actually has two qualifying polls right now for December. Now, he would need four of them, but still, for a late entrant, that's kind of a lot. He got 5% in each of the national polls released on Tuesday. And before those, he had several 3% results that just barely missed the cut. So it seems that Bloomberg really could get the polls he needs, but that donor thing is still an issue. And to close out this segment, let's hear from former HUD Secretary Julian Castro on the debate qualification rules. His comments came after Tom Steyer, who did make the debate, called for the DNC to change its rules so the debates would include more diverse candidates. 
When asked about this, Castro suggested a much deeper structural change to the primary process. Listen in. You know, I understand that uh, Tom Steyer may have called for the rules of the debate stage to be changed at this point. You know, I'm not interested in that. I'm not asking for anybody to change the rules of the game in the middle of it. That's not what I want. I want something much more meaningful and deeper than that. You need to change the whole game. There's no reason that Iowa and New Hampshire should go first. Two states that hardly have any black people in them, any people of color. Um, we need to reward states with giving them the primary in the first place at the beginning if they reflect the diversity of our party, of our country, and also if they do things like make voting easier for people, people with disabilities, workers who can't just show up one time at seven o'clock because they have to work a shift. Let's do that. If you make that kind of meaningful change, that's what I'll support. But I'm not interested in a handout for the debate stage or changing the rules of the game and making it unfair to the people who are already there. And in our final debate story for today, let's examine why qualifying for the December debate was so much harder than qualifying for November. Now, yeah, the DNC ramped up the rules yet again for the percentage each candidate had to get in polls and the number of donors they needed. But in the past, lots of candidates have been able to reach those increasing requirements pretty easily. So what was different this time? Reading from an article by Jeffrey Skelly for 538, quote, There is one real challenge these candidates have faced, though, and that's that far fewer qualifying polls have been released in the last two weeks than in the previous five debates. Only two polls have been released in the last two weeks, compared to nine in the lead-up to the last debate. In fact, the two national polls from Monmouth University and Quinnipiac University released on Tuesday marked the first survey since a CNN poll came out on November 27th, the day before Thanksgiving. Most debates have seen anywhere from five to nine polls released in the last two weeks, but for the upcoming debate, it seems as if there will be less than five. So what's behind the dearth in polling? One obvious culprit is Thanksgiving. Pollsters tend to avoid polling around the holidays because of concerns about response rates. People are often traveling or visiting family and friends. In that sense, then, it's not surprising that there weren't any polls released right after the holiday weekend, when few pollsters would have been in the field anyway. However, pollsters could have conducted surveys last week and then released them this past weekend, yet none did. End quote. Skelly goes on to note that even with this overall lack of polling, one remaining factor is which organizations the DNC chooses as approved pollsters. They have a list, and not every pollster and not every sponsoring organization is on that list. And there were polls released after Thanksgiving, but they weren't on that list, so they don't count for the debates. If the DNC's rules were more permissive, that might have given more opportunities for candidates to get qualifying results. But, as always, the DNC sets the rules for the DNC's debates, and there is an open question about what those rules might be for January and February. Not to put too fine a point on it, but the big word here is Bloomberg. He will have good polling, but he won't have donors. We'll have to see whether the DNC makes room for Bloomberg on the stage by dropping that donor requirement, or if it sticks with the existing pattern of relying on both donors and polls. Either way, get ready, it's going to be a busy winter. (laughs) 
Hiring is challenging, and it used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter. In fact, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, and they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you cannot miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Right now, listeners here can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-G-I-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And now the impeachment news in about four minutes. Yesterday, the House Judiciary Committee began its markup process on the articles of impeachment. Just before the hearing began, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff sent over some new classified evidence to the Judiciary Committee. We don't know what that evidence is, but it may be a way to make sure the final bits of the investigation are technically on the record before any voting happens. In his opening statement, Judiciary Chair Jerry Nadler described how he thought the debate should go. Here's a clip. I believe that three questions should frame our debate. First, does the evidence show clearly that the president committed these acts? Second, do they rise to the level of impeachable high crimes and misdemeanors? Third, what are the consequences for our national security, for the integrity of our elections, and for our country if we fail to act? And the hearings did not stick to those questions. What followed was an immensely long hearing, which went late into the night. Nadler allowed every member a five-minute statement, and given that there are 41 members on that committee, this took a long time. There were many notable speeches that emphasized the personal biographies of the House members on that committee, and how they viewed the proceedings through the lens of their biographies. But the most explosive moment was when Representative Louis Gohmert of Texas named the person he thinks is the whistleblower as part of a list of people he called on to testify. Now, Schiff had previously warned members repeatedly not to do this, as the whistleblower statute allows whistleblowers to remain anonymous, and there have already been threats of violence against this unnamed person. Schiff had also noted that any attempt by a House member to release that name could be an ethics violation. Meanwhile, in an odd twist of the calendar, this hearing began precisely 21 years to the day after the same committee approved articles of impeachment against President Bill Clinton. After the hearings wrapped up late last night, they started right up again this morning. As the hearings continued, they were, yet again, beset by procedural motions designed to stretch things out. At one point, Republican Jim Jordan introduced a resolution that would strike the entire first article of impeachment. 
That kicked off an hours-long debate because, again, all members of the committee get time to comment on that kind of resolution. And as I say these words, there is every reason to assume it'll happen again with the second article. So I presume a vote will happen at some point tonight, and if so, I'll tell you about it tomorrow. But at this rate, honestly, who knows? Okay, one more procedural note. As we get closer to a vote on the House floor, some Democrats from districts that went for Trump in 2016 are reportedly planning not to vote for impeachment. So here's how the math works. Assuming the vote goes along party lines and independent Justin Amash votes with Democrats, Democrats can afford to lose the votes of up to 17 members. The reports I've seen have as many as six considering that action, and we are likely to see a vote sometime next week. And here's a quick one. After I reported on Tuesday that seven states now have either no Republican presidential primary at all, or one with just President Trump on that ballot, Hawaii has joined that list. So make it eight. The Hawaii GOP has announced that all of its delegates are going to vote for Trump, and there will be no presidential preference poll. Now, you may ask, what is a presidential preference poll? Well, to oversimplify wildly, it's kind of halfway between a caucus and a primary. But the point here is that it's the mechanism by which the party would allocate its delegates. And it's not happening, so that's that for now. And another item on GOP primaries. A judge in South Carolina has dismissed a case against the state GOP that could have reinstated its presidential primary. It's a somewhat complex decision in terms of the legal argument, and the ruling is in the show notes if you're curious. Overall, this very likely means there will be no South Carolina Republican presidential primary. Actually, sorry, no presidential preference primary. Anyway, reading for an article by Jamie Lovegrove in the Post and Courier, quote, Richland County Circuit Judge Jocelyn Newman ruled that the South Carolina GOP did not count as a state government actor at the time of the executive committee's decision and would only become one in the eyes of the law if they had decided to hold a primary. She also determined that some of the statutes the plaintiffs sought to apply to presidential preference primaries only apply to other types of primaries. Presidential primaries are unique in that they do not determine the party's nominee, but only bind delegates to vote for a certain candidate at the party's national convention. End quote. So, like I said, there is some complexity in the legal stuff, and feel free to dig into that using those show notes if you are curious. And last up today, CNN reporter David Wright did a roundup of how much Democratic primary candidates have spent on TV ads so far this primary cycle. While I don't want to just read you a giant list of numbers, I am going to pick out a few of them here. At the top of the list are Bloomberg at more than $100 million and Steyer at more than $82 million. And then there's a huge drop-off to the next candidate down the list. That is Senator Bernie Sanders at more than $8 million. In other words, about one-tenth of what Steyer has already spent. If you're curious about who's spending money on TV in this campaign, well, that's the broad answer. It's the two billionaires currently spending way, way more money than everybody else combined. There are a few more interesting notes here, though. First, Biden has only spent about $2 million on TV so far, and that's a bit surprising given his standing in the polls. For comparison, Yang has spent more than twice that much. 
Now, having said that, there is a super PAC running ads on Biden's behalf, but still, they're not spending a whole lot. And one final fun fact that jumped out at me is that author Marianne Williamson has spent just $972 on TV ads. Now, wherever she got that deal, I want to go and run an ad. So if you have a TV station and you can run my ad on the air for $972, get in touch. Well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Well, folks, once the list of candidates is finalized, which will be, you know, after midnight tonight, I'm going to start cranking out some more debate bingo cards. I am not looking forward to that process for February, so to be honest, we might just ditch bingo in 2020, but I will keep you posted. Meanwhile, it is a gray day in Portland as my giant gray cat, Mr. Spock, snoozes right here beside me. And no, he did not even wake up when I said his name or move in any way. He had an exhausting morning eating food and sleeping by the fire. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to you all tomorrow. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.